Tonight's reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. The word of the Lord. You know, the whole New Year thing, it's a little bit contrived. I mean, for good reasons, I'm sure, like psychologically or sociologically. The idea of something new beginning, something being swept clean, a new start. But it's not really a very accurate summation of reality. Resolve away. But your DNA will be the same this week as it was last week. And you will be the same you next year, probably even approximately the same weight. I'm sorry. <laughs> the globe is still warning, warming. The Republicans control the House and the Senate. It is not a clean slate. January 1st begins a calendar, and a calendar serves a purpose, but all things have not been made new. But there really was a time when the world began new. When things started, whatever things were then. Don't you think that is a mind-blowing thing to contemplate? My kids always seemed to chose to do it when they were supposed to be going to bed. Just as I reached the door and was about to turn out the light, Mom, how did we get here? Why do we exist? or something. It's unsettling. And telling the story of Genesis is probably a lot easier for most people than explaining the Big Bang. I mean, I couldn't possibly. And to borrow something I heard Werner Herzog say when I passed him recently, facts per se do not consider truth. Otherwise, the Manhattan phone directory would be the book of books, four million entries, every single one factually correct. Mr. Jonathan Smith, his address can be verified, but whether he has nightmares, whether he cries into his pillow every night, we do not know. We tell stories to find truth, a truth that is different than cold, hard facts. Every culture ever told stories about how we got here. I mean, how could you not tell stories? And many of these stories wouldn't make that great bedtime stories. Or maybe they would, but the film board wouldn't rate them G. 
Sweet, light, unambiguously beautiful ancient narratives about the beginning of time are very hard to come by. In one version of a Greek myth, the world is created when a golden egg cracks and eros emerges. And one half of the shell becomes the sky, the other half becomes the earth. Eros makes them fall in love, they have sex, they make babies. One of the babies is named Cronus, who ends up envying the power of his father, so cuts off his father's genitals, spills the resulting blood into the sea, which turns into several creatures, many monsters. And after castrating his father, Cronus becomes so afraid that his own children will do the same to him that he begins to swallow all of them whole as soon as they are born. Nice. In the sacred story of the Iroquois, long before the world was created, there was an island floating in the sky where the sky people lived. And they lived happily and quietly, and no one was ever sad, and no one born, was born or ever died. Until one day, one of the sky women realized she was going to give birth to twins. And she told her husband, and he flew into a rage. So then he pulls up this tree from the middle of the sky island and creates this huge hole. And when his wife bends down to peer through the hole, he takes his foot and he shoves her over the edge down into the hole. She ends up being saved by animals, which is cool, and creating North America, but still. The Navajo creation myths are complex and often lovely. I'm sorry, but I'm into these creation myths. But in one of these, the great God creates twin humans, and he smiles, but the previous son is jealous, so he kills the twins. He slits their bodies from neck to toe, and then he cuts the flesh into small pieces, and then he stuffs all these pieces back into their heads, and he blows through their empty bodies to create plants and clouds. And in the story most closely related to the Genesis Genesis account, in the Babylonian, Babylonian creation myth, the god Marduk is created to defend the divine beings from an attack plotted by the ocean goddess Tiamat. And Marduk, Marduk offers to save the gods, but only if he is appointed the supreme, unquestioned leader forever. For some reason, the gods agree to make him the supreme, unquestioned leader forever, but so he kills Tiamat, he rips her corpse into halves, very bloody, and one half of the dead monster's corpse becomes earth, and the other half becomes sky. And then Marduk kills Tiamat's husband and uses that blood to create humankind. So children kill parents, parents eat children, siblings are murdered, and thus creation begins. Why not something more unambiguously beautiful? Maybe it's because there's something risky, something even dangerous, at least very uncertain, that comes with creating. And it opens up the possibility of loss and failure and fear and rivalry and unchecked passion, all manner of travesty. God didn't have to create the problematic, volatile beings who will sadden God. But God does. God assumes the risk of the live process of creation. I really kind of like 
the account in the beginning of Genesis of creation. Because it's really remarkably gentle in comparison to so many of the other myths. In Genesis, God speaks, doesn't, in fact, rip any body parts apart, doesn't cut off his father's genitals, says, simply says, let there be, and there is life, all sorts of it. It sounds much more like art than violence. There's no titanic, destructive, terrible battles. The lack of violence is almost astounding in comparison to many creation myths. It's all creation. God is super creative, makes light and dark and fish and trees and bugs and plants and people, makes the world and thinks it's good. God likes it, obviously, a lot, and is not in rivalry with any of it. Admittedly, the story does turn a little just a few chapters in, but this is the beginning. And if anything is clear from the story in Genesis, it's that God doesn't want to be alone. We'll risk creating relationships whatever the outcome. I think that's maybe the most important revelation here. Obviously, the story isn't about grappling with the astrophysical dynamics of the origins of the universe. What it does tell us is about the beginning of a relationship. Think about it that way. Listen to it that way. Not like we listen to Science Friday or read a textbook. Don't listen for things you listen for when you listen like that. Don't think about dinosaurs or Neanderthals and the Big Bang. I mean, that's all very interesting, and you can think about it later, but Genesis is poetry. It's a love story. Listen to it like you listen to that. And it seems like there's always a lot of mystery in love stories. Weaving in and out of what you know is always what you don't know. But it leads you to a different place than scientific inquiry. In the beginning, God created. In a way, that's really a very abrupt start to the whole thing. I mean, it's the very first line of the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible, and already this involvement begins. Philosophy and theology often begin their discussions about God by discussing God and God's self. But the Bible doesn't really do that at all. You don't even get a glimpse of some autonomous, transcendent being operating with some dispassionate remove. There's none of that. Instead, bang, right away, God creates. There actually isn't a story in the Bible about who God is apart from us, apart from creation. No story about God basking in the great height of God's perfect singularity. There's none of that. Instead, immediately, God makes the world. I love that. There's no great one alone in the story of the Bible. That seems like a truth worth revealing, a truth worth heeding, that you don't necessarily get from the facts of the Big Bang, if those are even facts, but maybe you could get those. Some people like to wonder about who God is as some autonomous being, God and God's self, but there's none of that in the story in the Bible. 
But we know about God, God creates. Greatness, how we conceive of it a lot of times, involves aloneness. Remove. The great one is someone that goes up alone, the solitary genius. But in the beginning, God makes an entirely different move. There are lots of myths about beings rising to the top alone, gods and demigods who distinguish themselves from the hordes and the masses. Hercules, great warriors, the Jedi Knights. Jedi Knights can't allow themselves to become attached to people because attachment will compromise their heroics. The moment that they become involved with a lover, their ability to be a salvific leader is jeopardized. Suddenly, instead of wise and dispassionate nobility, there'll be passion. Instead of some pure and quiet strength, there'll be jealousy and anger and desire. In these stories, involvement will somehow lead to weakness. The great and the strong must go up alone. The story along, the story over the long arc of the Bible is not that story at all. God comes down and creates immediately. Not God's masterpiece exactly, but this other, the others, whom God will doggedly pursue. To have an other with whom you must reckon, speak, struggle, feel, love, fight, it messes with you. It distracts you. It derails you from your path. But in the beginning, God became involved. That's the story in the Bible. God's very first move could be seen as something that was bound to diminish God's greatness. God's not going to be autonomous. God's not going to be unaffected and dispassionate and alone. God will be very, very affected. God immediately binds God's self to the earth. God creates. Always a messy enterprise. Paint all over everything. The kitchen gets dirty. It may not always be reckless, but there's usually an element of risk. There are untold hazards that open up. To bring something into the world compromises your serenity. Instead of peaceful mornings sipping coffee, there will be someone constantly messing up your house, constantly interrupting your solitude, constantly breaking your stuff breaking your heart, questioning you, and then leaving to go to college. What creating ushers in doesn't seem like order. It seems more like love. And what a complicated, what a messy, what a crazy, beautiful, painful thing that can be. Creating ushers in all sorts of possibility, potentiality, and not all of it's neat and perfect, and not all of it is unambiguously good. We often hear the story of Genesis as if it's God ordering chaos. But if there's something like that that's happening in the first four days, then by the fifth, 
and God creates the swarms of living creatures and the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves. And with God saying to all that moving and swarming, multiply, that doesn't sound neat. It sounds messy. Swarms, monsters, moving, multiplying. On the sixth day, the story says God takes God's hands and puts them into the dirt and forms man out of dirt. God doesn't stand back and think humanity into being. God gets dirty. There are other places in scripture that speak as if God gave birth to God's people through God's womb. So the image isn't scientific. It isn't this God cerebrally calculating the origins of humanity. We come from the hands, from the womb. God creates. The relationship of the hands to the work, the mother's relationship to the child in her room, it's a relationship that is the opposite of abstract and detached. It's intimate involvement. In the beginning, God engages in the muddy or the bloody, the potentially heart-wrenching process of creating. It doesn't lead to simplicity and nobility and stoicism, but to an inevitably complex experience. If you read the rest of the Bible, you see what follows. It's chaos, it's tragedy, it's comedy. It's not about heroes or great men who rise to the top alone. It's about God's relationship to creation. And eventually, in the Christian tradition, God's incarnation into the world as a human being with nostrils and armpits. It's a crazy story of a God who keeps trying to get as close to us as possible, as if God wants very intimate involvement. Transcendent doesn't seem like the right word. There's a mutual vulnerability. There's a risk in making. God chooses or makes the move that brings on the possibility of so much. Chaos, passion, pain, tears, betrayal, love. In the very beginning of the story of God, what we hear is not something that should send our minds to rational calculations about dinosaurs and the Big Bang. It's more like something that might evoke a response. A response like we might have to a lover or a mother who says, I love you, and means it in such a thick and foundational and enduring way that it is as unfathomable as infinity. Genesis 1 announces the deepest mystery, but it's not just mystery. It is the mystery that God so loved that God created decided for us, and the binding is irreversible, no matter how we would try to sever it. God's greatness isn't in some rigid, rigid, transcendent detachment. God's greatness is love.